so had, had any of you guys been watching America's Got Talent recently? Anybody watch that? Yeah, we, we did. If, if you had, if you've been watching it, you saw that uh, Susan Boyle made it to the finals again. Uh, and that, that's no surprise because she has an amazing voice, doesn't she? But you know what actually may uh, be even more amazing than that is the fact that it was a voice that was almost never discovered because of the way she looks. Uh, like, have you, ever, have you ever watched her very first performance? It was April 11, 2009, on a show called Britain's Got Talent. Uh, and I just want to read to you real quickly how the, this event was reported afterwards in an uh, entertainment uh, news article. The author said, Mrs. Boyle, uh, an overweight, frumpy, and aging spinster from Scotland, appeared on the show much to the horror, mirth, and consternation of the judges and of the audience alike. Nearly everyone laughed and, and scoffed, thinking that she was a real Fruit Loop uh, and a loser. Certainly the three judges seemed to feel that way. At first glance, everyone had written her off simply based on her appearance and a bit of odd behavior. But as soon as she opened her mouth, all that changed. And the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, history as she uh, overcame her fear of failure and uh, the sneers of the crowd and the prejudgments of people in positions of authority uh, to sing a song that expressed the hopes that she uh, carried on the inside of what to the eyes of the world seemed like a rather odd package outwardly, right? And that's exactly the situation that our psalmist David uh, finds himself in, uh, one that actually prompted him to pen today's psalm, Psalm 34. So if you're, you're joining us for the first time, we're doing an expository series through the psalms. Um, and we know that because he tells us right in the superscription of the psalm. It begins, a psalm of David regarding the time he pretended to be insane in front of Abimelech who sent him away. It's one of the strangest stories in the Old Testament, uh, and one that I'm sure that I've never heard preached on in church, and so here we go, we're going to give it a try. Uh, but I want to read it to you quickly, uh, just because since, since David gives us the exact incident that prompted today's psalm, I think it'd be a good idea for us to kind of see where he's coming from. So we're going to start out with First uh, Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. And it says, So David escaped from Saul and went to see King Achish of Gath. But the officers of King Achish were unhappy about his being there. Isn't this David the king of the land, they asked? Isn't he the one the people honor with dances Singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. David heard these comments and he was very afraid of what King Achish of Gath might do to him. So he pretended to be insane, scratching on the doors and drooling down his beard. Finally, King Achish said to his men, must you bring me a madman? We already have enough of them around here. Why should I let someone like this be my guest? And so David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all of his other relatives joined him there. And then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. Kind of a different story, huh? Uh, and it was from there, from that experience that he wrote Psalm 34. So just kind of take that story and, and hold it here in your mind, and I want to read to you Psalm 34 so you can be imagining what uh, prompted him to write it. So Psalm 34, beginning in verse 1, uh, which says, I will praise the Lord at all times. 
I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people, for those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Come, my children, and listen to me, and I will teach you to fear the Lord. Does anyone want to live a life that's long and that's prosperous? Then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He will erase their memory from the earth. The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to rescue each time. For the Lord protects the bones of the righteous. Not one of them is broken. Calamity will surely destroy the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the Lord will redeem those who serve him. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. So, we, kind of, we saw the, the context of the writing of this psalm that David was running from King Saul. And, and you'll remember, uh, as a young man, he had been pulled from his father's sheephold uh, and anointed as king over Israel. Uh, the only problem with that scenario was that Saul was still technically king of Israel. And so, quite naturally, Saul became jealous of David. Uh, and in a couple of his fits of jealousy, he tried to kill David. So... Poor David had to run for his life. Except when you're somebody like him that's not just nationally but internationally famous, where do you hide? Right? So, so he decides he's got to leave the country. And, and if you were looking at a, a map, kind of the closest border crossing out was for him to go into Philistia, you know, the home of the Philistines. Uh, and, and you remember the Philistines, right? The arch enemies of Israel, the homeland of Goliath, the giant. Right, Goliath, the giant who had been the Philistines' greatest champion and, and who, by the way, David had just killed not so very long ago. Uh, and, and just like that, David's life went from crazy to even a little crazier. So David comes to the city of Gath and he meets Abimelech Akish. Now Abimelech, if you notice, it says Abimelech in the psalm. It says Akish in the, in, uh, the scripture text. Uh, Abimelech is just a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. So he runs into King Akish. And some of the king's servants say, uh, Hey, king, you see that guy over there? That guy's David from Israel. Uh, maybe you heard the song that they wrote about him. It goes like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. 
Uh, and of course, when David hears his theme song, right, he, he knows the jig is up. He realizes that he's been recognized uh, and he gets scared. So scared that he gets a little crazy. And whether it was partially real or completely play acting, he pretended to be insane. So insane that the king of Philistia says to his courtiers uh, around him, with David uh, standing there drooling and, and picking at the woodwork, uh, fellas, was there a shortage of crazy people in the land I didn't know about? <laughs> and so you thought you'd import me one from Israel? Uh, don't you think I've got enough of them as it is without adding another one? Get him out of here. And so David was kind of sent packing with nobody much caring where he went as long as it was away. Pretty crazy, right? And so in the, the midst of all that crazy, we have to kind of ask ourselves the question, uh, what was David thinking when he penned Psalm 34? And even more importantly, what message is the Holy Spirit revealing through David to us sitting here about 3,000 3, some years later? Uh, and and there's a, honestly, there's a lot of ways to look at this psalm, but the one way that really resonated with me that I'm going to share with you uh, is that if you take this psalm and uh, you kind of read it over a couple of times, uh, two themes start to emerge out of it. Uh, two themes that really shape all of our lives, if we think about them honestly. Uh, and one is fear, and one is desire. Fear and desire. And kind of a lot of decisions get made between those two rails, don't they? between what we fear most and, and what we most desire. And I don't mean in a, a weird kind of Sigmund Freud way where we try to psychoanalyze all of our actions. No, I'm talking about uh, in the best traditions of biblical wisdom literature that was laid down long before the psychiatric industry began. Because the point that I believe that David is trying to make in today's psalm is to say that you know, our lives are not primarily about our, our behavior or our vocation or, or our public perception in the eyes of others, but it's really about whether or not we're growing in grace and becoming increasingly transformed into the image of the one who made us, the one who called us to himself, uh, and that he does that by bringing us the promise of a Savior, the promise of a Messiah. Uh, the one that if you were looking carefully, David actually wrote about in verses 6 and 7. Uh, because when David realized that he'd been delivered out of the hands of all of his enemies, he said in verse 6 today, In my desperation I prayed, and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. And this is the one that I'm getting to, verse 7. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. And you notice the verse didn't say it was Anne angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, right? Not and, but the. It was the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God's personal presence, uh, the bringer of salvation, the one that we know as Jesus Christ, because ultimately he is the only one who can fulfill our deepest desires and, and cure our crazy and calm our fears, right? Kind of like it says in that great hymn by Charles Wesley, uh, Jesus, the name that calms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music to the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. Uh, hear him, ye deaf, give praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior, come and leap, ye lame, for joy. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. 
His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Uh, And isn't that really what we all desire for our, our sorrows to cease and our infirmities to be relieved and our lives to be really transformed? I mean, not just just superficially like those photos that you see of celebrities in magazines that have been photoshopped beyond all reality, but truly and deeply, because, you know, that's what God desired for David, and it's what he desires for us, too. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, he's telling us that God intends that we will slowly but surely be transformed from the crazy, chaotic image of this world and into the image of Christ. But... You know, it doesn't happen overnight, does it? And it won't happen by accident. And it cannot happen without the work of the Holy Spirit who takes our, our worldly hearts of stone and softens them so that we'll begin to fear the consequences of our sins and see our need for salvation and begin to develop a holy desire to live in the revealed presence of Jesus Christ. And just to give you kind of an illustration of that, for you uh, history buffs out there, you remember that in 1501, uh, a 26-year-old sculptor named Michelangelo uh, was offered uh, a considerable sum of money to produce something worthwhile from this enormous block of marble that had gained uh, the nickname of the giant. Uh, And as he began his work, he saw there was this major flaw near the bottom corner Uh, that had really stymied other sculptors before him that had looked at it, including, uh, it said, Leonardo da Vinci. And so he studied the block, and and he looked at it, and then all at once, in a flash of inspiration, he decided to turn that damaged bit of marble into the likeness of a broken tree stump that would support the right leg of the figure that he had in mind to make. Uh, and, And the rest of the block he worked on, some scholars say two and a half years, some say four, uh, but either way, when he was finished, he produced the incomparable work called David. And today, the 17-foot statue is still on display uh, at the Academia Gallery in Florence, uh, where people come to see it from all over the world. Uh, It's one of the greatest works of art ever produced. It's actually been said that there is no statue more perfect. And how did he do it? Well, here's the answer in his own words. He said, I had only to hew away rough spots that imprisoned the lovely vision to reveal it to the eyes of others as my eyes saw it. So basically he's saying, I just chipped away everything that didn't look like David. Right? Just chipped away everything that didn't look like David. And, but now apply that to our spiritual lives, right? Because aren't we all a work in progress? Right? I mean, we're not finished. We're not perfected. We're not glorified. Uh, our lives are messy. Our emotions get crazy at times, and and it's because, uh, like David, the statue, and David, the king, in the story, we're all still under construction. But thankfully, God never stops working on us because there's so much work that still needs to be done. And that's because you and I are kind of like that flawed block of marble, right? We're badly marred, 
misshapen, uh, discolored, and uh, some of us more than others are cracked in odd places mentally and physically. (laughs) But God is undeterred. And he works patiently at his job, cutting away the bad parts and stopping occasionally to polish here and there and chipping away at everything that doesn't look like the image of Jesus. Uh, And I know that in my case, he has a long way to go, but I also know that he won't quit halfway through on any of us. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And David knew that too. That's why he said today in verse 4, Psalm 34, 4, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shame or shadow of shame will darken their faces. Because you see, nobody that's been declared righteous by faith in Christ and who's humbled themselves at his feet will ever be ashamed of having done that. Not in this world and not in the next. That's why Jesus promised in John 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And he's calling out to us today with that same message. Come to me, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And that message wasn't just for the people of Jesus' day. It wasn't just for people 2,000 years ago. That invitation still stands and Jesus says, come. Come with your hungers and your appetites and your thirst, but come to me. Because that's the only place that you're going to be freed from fear and really ever fully satisfied. And so we kind of end with where we began today with a psalm that was written by a sinful king who feigned insanity to save his life but who through the power of the holy spirit had good sense enough to recognize that a greater king was coming one who would come not to present himself as something that he wasn't but rather to actually become something that he could scarcely imagine to become our sin and not for pretend but to really put on all of our crazy acts of cosmic rebellion and all of our shame and all of our slovenly attempts at good works, not to save himself, but to save us, to eternally save us so that today he could invite each of us to stop pretending and to come back and allow him to fill us up again like he alone can do. And he does that at the cross. At the cross, at that place where God's perfect righteousness and his relentless love for us meet and are reconciled together. At the cross where God's justice was perfectly administered and his mercy publicly put on display, when God himself took the punishment meant for the guilty, meant for us, meant for me, as Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for he, God, made him Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When in in that moment on the cross that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in those awful moments, when Jesus was experiencing the very definition of hell, uh, of abandonment and separation from the Father, as God placed all of the sins of the world on him, Uh, all of the sins from that first fall in the garden to the murder of Abel, to the atrocities of war, to the violence and corruptions in our streets and in our government, all the way down to the little white lie maybe you told when you walked into church today. Jesus took them all. 
But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Because just like his ancestor David, Jesus trusted his fate into the hands of the Father. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, and, and he was claiming that promise that David had prophesied today in Psalm thirty-four, seventeen, that the Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. For the Lord protects the bones of the righteous, and not one of them is broken. You see, over and over again, Psalm 34 speaks to us of God uh, delivering and hearing and rescuing. But then it gives us this great little messianic line in verse 20. Uh, this is a verse, for the Lord protects the bones of the righteous, not one of them is broken. Uh, he didn't say the bones of righteous people or the bones of righteous ones, but the bones of the righteous one. And, and you know, of course, that's referring to that's referring to our Lord. In fact, the Apostle John quotes that verse uh, in a line in his gospel in chapter 19. I'm going to share that section with you briefly, beginning with verse 31. Uh, and John writes, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for this Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness, and his testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken so just imagine the scene in your mind right it's a busy passover weekend there are places to go and things to do and so with a desire to hasten the death of these criminals the roman soldiers break the legs of the two thieves at calvary but when they come to jesus and realizing that he is already dead they do what roman executioners know how to do with precision they drove a spear through his ribs and into his chest cavity to assure that he was in fact dead. And on finding that he was, there was no reason to beat up his body any further. So not one of his bones were broken. And as crazy as that sounds in that little detail, John said these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. The Scripture about a perfect, unspoiled Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. That's our whole message. The message that oftentimes makes believers look like fools for Christ in the eyes of the world. But that's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians verse 3, if it seems we're crazy, it's to bring glory to God. And if we're in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they'll live for Christ. Christ who died and was raised for them, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. But oh, how differently we know him now. And this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life 
has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. No longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead. Come back to God. Brothers and sisters, come back to God. That's our message. Be reconciled to God. So that when the craziness of this world comes to an end, whether it's at our death or when the Lord comes back, we can pray in those words of Psalm 34, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joy of those who take refuge in him. Not just in this world, but forever. Amen? Let's pray together.